Israel is fighting the enemies of civilization itself. Victory over these enemies begins with moral clarity. It begins with knowing the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong. It means making a moral distinction between the deliberate murder of the innocent and the unintentional casualties that accompany every legitimate war, even the most just war. A great number of people actually are taking uh, hospitals as shelter. So people, they uh, during the day, they go uh, to their homes, but in the evening they come to uh, these hospitals uh, to spend the night in there because the night in Gaza is um, is really uh, different from any other place in the world. There is this great danger now of law and order breaking down within Gaza. The UN is very worried about it. Israel says that what it is doing is it's going to destroy Hamas. But if it succeeds in doing that, then what do you have? You have anarchy. This weekend, there was a 34-hour blackout across Gaza, where paramedics, who were unable to receive any emergency calls, just had to drive towards the sound of explosions as panic rippled across the Gaza Strip and Israeli troops began a ground incursion in the north. The IDF rescued one of their soldiers who was held hostage by Hamas, but says there's still around 200 people being held captive in Gaza. On Monday, the UN Chief for Humanitarian and Relief Affairs said that the scale of the horror people are experiencing in Gaza is hard to convey. What happened in Gaza during those 34 hours? And what's happening now? And now that Israeli troops have officially entered the Strip, a densely populated area of around 2 million residents, what's their plan? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, after the blackout, what's happening in Gaza? I'm Richard Spencer. I've been Middle East correspondent for The Times for the last seven years, and I'm currently in Tel Aviv and covering the conflict with Gaza from Tel Aviv and around the country. And Richard, you've been watching the situation unfold. What exactly is happening in Gaza right now? What is the situation like? In Gaza, there are two clear developments, if you like, from the news perspective. There is the ground invasion, which began on Friday in earnest. It wasn't called a ground invasion, but that's what it amounts to. You don't see this very often in the Gaza wars over many years. Dismounted Israeli soldiers moving in, supported by tanks. There are columns of tanks that are operating for the Israelis in the north of the Gaza Strip. They managed to break the road that connects northern and southern Gaza, just south of Gaza City, and moved those tanks into the far south of Gaza City. Israeli Defence Forces released pictures showing their soldiers entering the rubble of urban areas. This is an invasion that will take soldiers deep into the heart of Hamas strongholds and tunnels. 
All the while, the soldiers are supported by tanks and jets, firing and destroying buildings the IDF say are controlled by Hamas. They're also doing what they call clearing operations on the north and the northern edges of the Gaza Strip. So they are, if you like, gradually starting to encircle Gaza City, the biggest city in Gaza. Uh, the second thing that's going on, of course, is the fairly relentless bombing campaign against Gaza. The Israelis say they are targeting tunnels and Hamas command points. But as they also point out, those command points are in the tunnels. And to get the tunnels, they are causing a huge amount of destruction in ordinary towns, villages, cities in Gaza, where those 2 million Palestinians, 2.3 million Palestinians live and causing fairly enormous casualties amongst both Hamas fighters, obviously, but also uh, civilians. And have you been able to speak to anybody inside Gaza? So the Times has a correspondent in Gaza who is filing very moving and fairly grim dispatches from the ground there. She is talking to families who've lost everything. She talked to two members of a family, an extended Palestinian family, where very distant relatives had all gathered under one Roof, I say one roof, actually there were a couple of buildings which these families who were all related to each other had gathered together, about a hundred people. And those two buildings were struck by Israeli missiles. So far they've pulled out 22 bodies from the rubble. 50 or 60 people survived uh, with greater or lesser injuries and they fear that there are another 30 people still trapped under the rubble or presumed dead under wow. the rubble. Pretty grim stories. And I'm also talking to people in Gaza. There are doctors there, including uh, one or two British doctors and British trained doctors who are working in the hospitals there who can also give us updates. So the updates are that the system is now just falling apart, barely, barely functioning. The shortages are everything, including drinking water. I mean, literally, uh, there are queues around the corner and even the staff are having difficulty finding drinking water. It's pretty difficult to get a hold of people because of the communications are poor. There was that blackout over the weekend. But people are able to talk to us. They're able to get voice notes out to us describing what they're seeing around them. Basically, they're using artillery to shell from the eastern border over Shifa onto Shatik camp. And so you could, that whole night, the whole building was just shaking. And with the absence of communication, you just never knew what was happening. Richard, you mentioned the blackout there. That happened over the weekend. There was a complete blackout, not just between the rest of the world and Gaza, but between people within Gaza. Just explain how that happened and what was happening while Gaza was in blackout. It was very sudden on Friday evening. There'd been a couple of ground incursions, small little operations with a couple of battalions of tanks in the previous days and then suddenly at around nightfall on Friday we started getting reports that something big was happening. There were huge explosions visible from outside the strip as a very intense bombing raid began and then suddenly all the communications with people inside including our correspondents there just went down and aid agencies saying or they could also not get hold of people 
there are one or two people in the strip with satellite phones, so they were still able to talk. And one or two people who live close to the edge of the strip who have Israeli SIM cards were able to, you know, log onto onto the Israeli network and and get messages out. So we were aware that you know we had enough communication to know there was no communication on the ground. So people were also not able to call for emergency help. They were not able to call hospitals. They were not able to call relatives to find out if they were alive or dead or being bombed or in need of help or trying to escape. And that lasted for about 36 hours. It was a very um, frightening time for anyone who knew anybody in in Gaza. And and do we know why the blackout was in place? What, What was happening? Yeah, it's not actually that unusual in one sense. If you want to launch a grand invasion, one of the things you want to do is disturb your enemy's communications. So in the old days, you would obviously, you know, target radar and radio batteries and um, communications points. Uh, Of course, in this world of mass communication, where everyone has a cell phone and a smartphone and GPS and so on, you know, you can't just cut off the military networks if you're going to operate like this. That also means cutting off ordinary people. And Richard, for people trying to understand what's happening inside Gaza now, you know, it's so rare to be able to get Western journalists, for example, aren't allowed in. It's, It's so difficult to get a picture of what's happening. I know you've been speaking to Palestinians outside Gaza. Tell us a bit about that. Tell us about the Palestinian chef you spoke to. Yes, so I had a very interesting conversation with a guy called Isildin Bukhari, who's from a very distinguished family in East Jerusalem. And he is a chef. He goes around the world giving demonstrations of Palestinian cuisine. He was actually due to be in London on the day we spoke, but he was stuck in this terrible situation. And his mother is from Gaza. His sister also married a guy from Gaza and lives in Gaza. And he described how he had lost 31 members of his family in an airstrike a few days ago, in, in one case when Hamas, when the health ministry in Gaza put out figures and names of 6,000 of the dead from this round of fighting, there was one family which had 88 names on it on the list, you know, quite an unimaginable scale of loss for individual families. And so Isaldine was just telling me about, you know, how you find out about your family being killed when everyone's being killed together. Tell me about some of the other Palestinians you've been speaking to. So I also spoke the other day to a guy called Jamal Zakut, who's actually a political figure. He's um, a long-standing activist. He's a member of a political faction called the DFLP, which is a secular left-wing Palestinian faction. He was previously an advisor to the Western-recognized government of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. He and his wife both have family in Gaza. And he also found out what had happened to his wife's family when his nephew rang from Turkey. So in that case, the phone call went to a, went to a brother in Turkey to mm. tell him that his, all his brothers and sisters and their children had been killed uh, together in, a, in an airstrike in, in Gaza. And so um, Jamal's wife whose sister survived but was badly injured um, in the bombing, was told of this terrible loss by um, a nephew in Turkey. And then she had to ring 
her children in Canada to tell them that all their cousins had been killed in a single bomb. I think for most people listening, you know, it's sort of unimaginable to think of losing 20, 30 people in your family all at once. How did the people you were speaking to, how did they reflect on it? You know, we talk a lot about cultural difference. I think people feel very cultural difference very strongly when they look at these terrible events happening on the other side of the world. But I don't think there's much cultural difference in things like this at all. I mean, sometimes it's expressed differently. There are different rituals of mourning around the world, different ways of expressing grief, but the loss is the same. And the words people say when describing it, that mixture of resignation, anger and grief that accompanies sudden death of any sort anywhere in the world is markedly the same. Coming up, now that troops have entered Gaza, what is Israel's plan? That's in just a moment. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Taking a step back, just looking at Israel's sort of strategy around Gaza, what do we know about what they're planning and, and what in particular they're targeting? You know, we know that Gazans were told to evacuate. North Gaza. Why was that and what do you think their strategy is? Yeah, that's a very interesting question about what the plan is for Gaza, for Israel. And it's a question where you can sort of divide the answer up into sort of tactics and strategy in the conventional way. Uh, what their current military plans are, I mean, they're not 
talking about it. Obviously, they don't tell us what their military map looks like, what their military tactics are. But it's pretty clear from what they've said right from the beginning with this concentration on northern Gaza and telling civilians to leave northern Gaza, and indeed where the tank fighting is going on at the moment, that the initial strategy is to take northern Gaza and particularly to surround Gaza City. That's where the tanks are moving in on. Uh, the tanks have come in from the east of the strip and come in in a column cross right to left, east to west, across the, the strip just south of Gaza. And meanwhile, you have these operations, shaping operations, as they call them, to the northeast and northwest of Gaza City. So they haven't staged ground incursions into the south of Gaza. So they are clearly going to focus on the north of Gaza first. But there are still strikes happening in the south. There are still strikes going on. And this raises the second question of tactics is, presumably, if they manage to get hold of Gaza City, if they manage to besiege it, maybe they are going to try and take it or maybe they'll just besiege it. Then they'll move on to the south. Now, two questions there. Will they actually try and do street to street fighting in Gaza City or will they just try and besiege it and starve out Hamas people inside and at the same time move on to the south and try and do the same there with the big population centres in the south? Or will they, you know, if you like, level northern Gaza and then just do the same in southern Gaza? The strategy of what they plan to do afterwards, what they intend to do with Gaza after they have presumably conquered it, that is another question which nobody is currently willing to address. And you talked about sort of besieging Gaza City and starving out Hamas. We know it's an intensely populated area. How do they do that? How do they starve out Hamas without starving out all the civilians who live there too? You know, I don't think they have much compunction about starving out the civilians too. I mean, if the they have you know warned the civilians to leave, uh, quite a lot of civilians have, of course, left Gaza City. You can foresee this becoming another humanitarian debate, if you like, on the world stage, where people will be pleading for food and water to be let into Gaza City, and Israel saying, "Well, no, there are Hamas there, and we." warn the civilians to leave. So those who've stayed have chosen to stand with Hamas. We've seen the Israelis talking about this. Netanyahu himself has come out and done a press conference on on Monday evening. He was asked about civilian casualties and he insisted that Hamas was causing these deaths. Not a single civilian has to die. Hamas merely has to let them go to the safe zone that we created in southeastern Gaza Strip. There's a safe zone there. Not a single civilian has to die. But Hamas is preventing them from leaving, keeping them in the areas of conflict. How does that sound to you from from where you are? I mean, a lot of things are said, uh, a lot of things said by both sides. Uh, Often you can have things said by both sides that are both true. So, yes, Netanyahu's right. They did suggest people find what sanctions they could in southern Gaza, and some have done that and some haven't. Uh, But it has to be said that there is also bombing in southern Gaza and, you know, nowhere is safe. It is just a relative question. And uh, you have seen civilian homes hit in Khan Yunis, the main town in southern Gaza, as well as in Gaza City, though um, not quite on the same scale. But is is there this safe zone that he described? Has that been verified? Do we know if there is a particular part of southeastern Gaza where there are no airstrikes, where civilians can be safe? 
No. I mean, yes and no. I mean, there are areas, I'd say, that are safer and there are areas that are less safe. People are trying to stay in their houses if they can. But of course, those are not safe zones in the sense that if you are in a house in car units, you don't know if your house is above a tunnel, which the Israelis have decided to target because it's a military target. And that's, that's the issue. Um, safe zones, as in, if you go to this neighborhood of Khan units, we can guarantee that we won't be striking you. No, there isn't. That, 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 there's no such safe zone on that line. I think he was talking in more general terms about areas that were safe for bombing, but those are not necessarily areas where you can sustain, you know, family life for an extended period of time. We've heard a spokesman from the Israeli Defence Force saying that, you know, the IDF is acting with great force in order to achieve the objectives of the war. Do we know what Israel's objectives are? So Israel's been very clear right from the beginning that their aim is to eradicate Hamas. They want to, they want to do to Hamas what, and they've been specific about this comparison, they want to do to Hamas what the Iraqi ground forces, the Kurdish ground forces and Western air forces the US Air Force, the RAF and other air forces did to ISIS in Mosul. They want to go through Gaza, they want to kill Hamas fighters and kill their leaders and capture those who they don't kill and thus remove Hamas as a governing force from Gaza. And then presumably they haven't quite got this far, but then hand Gaza over to somebody else to run. That's their goal. And, you know, as with Mosul, that does imply a very you know, destructive war, because as we know, half of Mosul was was levelled. And what has the international response been to that strategy? Because, you know, as you say, half of Mosul was levelled. We know that this is a densely populated area, so a lot of people are predicting a humanitarian crisis. How is this going down with the international community? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the term international community because it yeah. kind of sort of means anything you want it to mean, doesn't it? It's uh, not a monolith, uh, of course. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, talk us through the different factions. So so the UN for a start. So, uh, yeah, so when we talk about the UN here, what what's interesting is that, you know, people talk about the international community and they kind of sometimes mean the West and then they kind of sometimes mean the West and its institutions like the United Nations. I mean, this is a conflict where those cracks show very strongly. Um, the UN is horrified by the loss of Palestinian life and uh, the loss of lives of its own employees. Um, a lot of services in Gaza are provided by the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is the main UN agency that provides education and healthcare and other services to Palestinian refugees. They have actually lost more than 60 of their staff to the bombing um, who have been killed. So the Secretary General of the United Nations is very prominent amongst those calling for a ceasefire. On the other hand, you know, Western governments, by and large, certainly Britain, America, France, have said they stand by Israel and its right to take this sort of action against Hamas to try and eradicate it. It does feel like the international community, however you define it, is splitting at the moment around the question of whether there should be a ceasefire or a pause. Talk us through the argument. So the argument here is Israel's fairly clear and indeed there is a logic to what it says that the demands for a ceasefire make no sense. You know, one side has attacked the other. Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th. And Israel is now responding and people are saying, OK, well, 
just have a ceasefire, and that sounds great. But you know what you're saying is that Hamas can do this attack, and Israel can't respond. Of course, there's the question of proportionality. But as I say, Israel says that its war goals, and it's a war goal that Hamas must have expected, was that Israel would seek to eradicate Hamas, and a ceasefire will just allow Hamas to recoup itself and restock itself. And indeed, as they point out, what you're asking for is the state of play at five o'clock in the morning on October the 7th. There was a ceasefire then, which Hamas broke. And to say, you know, Hamas broke the ceasefire and then can just demand that it's reinstated again when they've achieved their aims is not a logical position. And that's a position that clearly the British and American governments and quite a few others accept. However, that is a logic that doesn't take into account the thousands of Palestinian civilian debt and how to stop this astonishing loss of civilian life. So this is why you're hearing this talk of a pause. The British government doesn't want to break with Israel by saying, no, you have to have a ceasefire. So they say, well, what about a pause, a brief break in the bombing to get food and water supplies in probably from Egypt into Gaza, allow people to seek safety where they can before, if you feel you must, start again. Israel says that once you've stopped a a war, it's very hard to restart it again. And in any case, that the same applies, that that will give Hamas breathing space when they are under pressure. Richard, it feels like things are changing every hour at the moment, but... What do you expect to see over the next few days and weeks? Yeah, I was saying this uh, (laughs) to Times Radio earlier. They were asking me about how I saw it playing out and whether things would change dramatically. I mean, of course, events happen all the time. Change is another matter. The build-up to these great conflicts are often more fast-moving than the war itself. I think that actually for the next few weeks, perhaps months, uh, the war will be very grinding, quite slow. Israel is not using blitzkrieg tactics. It hasn't sent all its 300,000 reserves that it's called up over the border. It's doing these very technical operations involving heavy armor and some infantry backup, of course, all under the umbrella of this huge campaign. And I think I think that is now set in stone for the next few weeks that these technical shaping and operations taking on the tunnel apparatus piece by piece will be what we see from now on. You don't really want to try and take on a tunnel network by sending thousands of men down tunnels to get booby-trapped and, uh, and attacked and ambushed. So uh, this, this is going to be a, a kind of fairly slow technical process that we won't see a lot of because it'll be going on underground or behind, behind a media blackout. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the former Middle East correspondent for The Times, Richard Spencer. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Richard's dispatches from Israel at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Farrell. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you have any questions about what happens behind the scenes at The Times and The Sunday Times, then please do send them our way. You can hear our forays around the newsroom in our new bonus episodes for Times subscribers on Apple Podcasts, released every Saturday. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.